Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, as well as wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. This week, we have a special wide-ranging conversation about the economics of big tech and the potential for state regulation, pressing topics given the recent tranches of internal information about how Facebook operates. Emeritus Professor from UTS, Roy Green, leads a conversation with Rana Faruha, global business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times and global economic analyst for CNN. This conversation was initially recorded as part of the 2021 UTS Vice-Chancellor's Democracy Forum. Turning to you, Rana, since your influential book, Concerns Have Been Growing About the Seemingly Unaccountable Power of Big Tech, uh, so alarmed are governments in the US, Europe, and here in Australia that legislation is being introduced to curb this power. Against this is the view that big tech is an engine of innovation, which is simply meeting the needs of business and consumers. So how do you see the rise of big tech? Is it a clear and present danger to democracy? And do the measures envisaged by governments go too far or not far enough? Those are many important questions. Let me try and step way back and set the context. The development of the internet, the consumer internet, which let's say started in the mid 1990s, is absolutely a transformative technology of our time. And I see it really akin to the development of the industrial internet, the military internet that came before it, but also the development of telephony, the development of the railroad 100 years ago. This is a a technology that is and will transform our world. And that's a great thing in many ways. If you look back in history, big bursts of shared productivity growth tend to come when there is a transformative technology and it is underwritten in some ways by the state, as in fact the development of the internet and the railroads were, and then privatized by by the private sector and commercialized and, and rolled out through society. We've now left, I would say, the first stage of the development of the internet. We're in maybe the end of stage one, beginning of stage two, And I think we're beginning to see some of the fallout and some of the negative externalities of this. Clearly, just as you had 100 years of religious wars after the development of a technology like the printing press, you're seeing a tremendous growth in populism, nationalism, misinformation, all of these negative externalities from the development of the consumer internet and digital technologies, and in particular, the rise of the platform technologies. And the platform technologies, to me, are in some ways the apex of the last 40 years of neoliberalism. Globalization, as it's been practiced, let's say, since the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, has really been about capital, people and goods being able to move wherever they will, and more recently, data being able to move. But one of the issues with this system is that capital and now data have been able to move much faster and much less transparently than either goods or people. And so what you have now is a paradigm in which companies themselves 
have come to rival the power of countries. And Australia is, you know, perhaps the best case in point of this, as we saw last spring with the government's fight against Facebook and Google and the fact that Facebook can now turn, literally turn off the news in an individual country for days on end. That really says something about the power dynamics. I kind of see the rise of big tech as maybe the beginning of the end of this neoliberal paradigm, the beginning of an era in which you see that the Washington consensus is broken. We don't quite know what the Beijing consensus is going to be, but we certainly have a Facebook consensus. And we do see governments now taking action around this, but we're not there yet. We don't have a solution. And we can you know, maybe dive into some of the particulars of, of what's happening globally. It's on that question of platform technology, and you liken it to uh, the railroads and possibly other platform technologies that we've seen in the past, those were tackled by, in the end, very vigorous antitrust competition policy measures. This is a new kind of technology, and it may not be as receptive to such measures. The administration has appointed a very interesting new trade commissioner, Lena Khan, different view about antitrust from the kind that was adopted in the Roosevelt era. Can you elaborate what that might mean? In, in tackling perhaps even the, the way in which these large technology companies are gobbling up all their competitors and, and apparently, according to recent evidence, doing so at an increasing pace. Yeah, 100%. So as you mentioned, we are going through some major regulatory shifts in the US. The Biden administration has come in and appointed a very tough group of regulators to tackle antitrust issues, Lena Khan being Case in point, Lena is part of really a movement, the new Brandeis movement is, is what it's known as in the US. And it's referring to Louis Brandeis, who is the big trust buster from the Roosevelt era. So Brandeis was a judge and a politician and a thinker who eventually brought to heel some of the big industrial giants, the oil and steel conglomerates, the, the coal conglomerates. And he was really all about tackling power and vested interests and power within the context of the political economy. And that's something, interestingly, that may seem obvious to some of us, but was actually lost during this last half century of neoliberal thought in the Anglo-American world, let's say, and in, in many OECD countries. Robert Bork, another important legal scholar in the U.S., was part of this University of Chicago school of thought that informed the Reagan-Thatcher years and, and all the regulation that happened since. And his contribution to, to the legal scholarship was the idea that consumers are all that matters. If prices are going down and consumers are happy, then there is no monopoly problem. There is no power problem. There is no asymmetry between a company and society at large. He didn't think much about society, he thought only about consumers. And that's been the precedent that has really ruled antitrust policy in the U.S. since the 1970s onward. Now, in the U.S., unlike in some other countries, it's really about the body of law that is built up and the precedent that is set. And so the precedent in the States has been a company can get really as big as it wants, as powerful as it wants, as long as prices are going down, everything's okay. But as you pointed out, these platform giants actually sort of fall outside the boundaries of that school of thought in the sense that when you and I engage with Facebook or Google, we're not giving our dollars, we're giving our data. It's a barter transaction. We don't really know what we're giving up. It has some value. 
And it particularly has some value when it's collated throughout the course of a day or a week or a lifetime and then pooled with other people's data. So just, just as an example, my camera right now can see where my eye patterns are going. If I was on a shopping website, that would be tracked. That would be put into a sort of a, a creation of a voodoo doll of me. All my data patterns are being tracked and those can then be sold to the highest bidder in the form of targeted advertising. That's the business model that has been built over the last two decades by the platform giants. And by the way, as I, as I covered in my second book, this was something that they completely knew about from the very beginning. If you go back, it's quite fascinating, actually. If you go back to the original academic paper that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, wrote at Stanford, when they actually came up with the idea for a search engine, they lay out what a search engine would be, how it would work but then how it might be monetized. And they actually called out the risks of targeted advertising in that paper. And they said, you know, if you do pay for a search engine through targeted advertising, you are going to leave society vulnerable to bad actors, both in the, the private sector or the public sector. And that's exactly what we've seen. There are these tremendous asymmetries of information we're not paying anything, except we are paying something as individuals and as a society, it's just not transparent. So just to kind of finish, I think this new Brandeis school of legal thought by going back to the original 1930s idea of power as something that exists in the political economy. And, and just as you all have seen in Australia, as many of, of us have seen in our own countries, through the lobbying efforts of these companies, through the ability of them to literally shut down government, this is a big issue. And I think it's, it's something that is going to take fire in other parts of the world as well. Some would say, and certainly the large technology companies would say that this might be a price worth paying to have a, a behemoth of a company to transform our society to contribute to innovation and productivity, uh, you really need bigness in order to carry this out. So they will say perhaps that we will introduce data privacy provisions and all sorts of checks and balances. But in the end, society benefits from having uh, such large companies. And if you broke them up or pursued a different type of industrial structure, you wouldn't get that level of innovation that they have contributed. Well, so, you know, 100%. Do I want search to go away? No. Do I care about Facebook? Not really, although perhaps some people do. But, you know, Amazon, Google, sure, these companies are providing pretty vital services at this stage. I mean, you know, we saw that really during the pandemic. It was a, a bit like a scrim had been pulled up and we all suddenly realized how much we needed all of these digital products and services. But if you look back again in history, think about the railroads. The railroads were privatized at one point, and boy, that was a vicious business back in the day. I mean, you can go and read some, some history about the wars between different railroad barons and the way in which they would literally buy politicians and then take them for cross-country trips on, the, on their railroads to show that they had various legislators in their pockets. But eventually, these essential technologies were turned into public utilities of a sort. Common carrier rules were used during the era of telephony to create a sort of a, an even playing field and make sure that there was a, a price that people were able to pay for these vital services. I think that's absolutely what we need to be thinking about now. We're not thinking broadly enough on regulation, I feel at this point. We're sort of picking it at different bits and bobs. The conversation about privacy is in one basket. The conversation about antitrust 
is in another basket. There are conversations about making people pay for content, which I think is absolutely valid. But ultimately, we need to say, look, this new railroad of the 21st century was bought and paid for by taxpayer money in the sense that the internet was was a, a government service. Much of the research that, that has underwritten these companies was, was paid for by the public sector. They are now essential to living, working, being educated. They need to be public utilities. They need to be regulated as such. And they can certainly be allowed to make a profit, but they cannot be allowed to make 42% profit margins, which was what Facebook made in you know, recent quarter at the expense of not just others in the economic playing field, but civil society. I guess the challenge for regulators in this case, and this is the distinction from the railroads, is that these are international companies. How do you see if we're moving towards a situation where these companies ought to be treated like public utilities, how would you undertake such a an effort across international boundaries. What we're seeing is that we are living in at least a bipolar, if not a tripolar or a multipolar world right now when it comes to these issues for the very reasons that you say. China is going a completely different direction on tech and trade regulation. We're seeing that now and we should perhaps parse that a bit more carefully as, as well, but they've made it quite clear in their five-year plan that they want to be completely independent of Western technology within the, the next few years. They're well underway to doing that. It's clear from some of the curbs on uh, the big tech companies in China recently, and even individual CEOs, that the state is firmly in charge. There is no presumption of privacy. This is uh, surveillance capitalism on the part of the big state at its highest level. And that is what it is. You know, we can make a value judgment on that or not. But I believe that system is antithetical to liberal democratic values. So now the question is, are developed nations, the US, Europe, Australia, uh, India, Japan, that are perhaps not part of that Chinese paradigm, are they going to come up with a shared system? And are they going to bring these companies to curb? Because right now we're living between big tech and the big state. And it's really a matter of coming together as liberal democracies and saying, here are the standards of behavior. Here's how you're allowed to operate in the 21st century economy. And this issue is only gonna get more pressing with COVID. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is how we may be about to see the kind of disintermediation of high level white collar work globally and outsourcing of that to lower wage countries that we saw in the manufacturing sector. COVID has shown us that much more work can be done remotely. Well, it's no accident that software that will strip out foreign accents and put an American accent or a British accent or an Australian accent in are now being sold and invested in by countries like the Philippines or India. This is going to create a tremendous amount of populism and just put on steroids some of the, the trends that we've already seen. So now is the time for governments to be coming together and having this discussion. And I'm really hopeful that we're going to see some action or at least some statements to this effect. Well, you raised the issue of populism and um, we've seen over the last few years the role that social media and big tech can play in political events and, and even in elections. The US election, obviously, uh, 2016, the Brexit referendum and the danger that that can pose. Who should decide what constitutes misinformation versus political speech online and how should it be done? 
let me start by saying who shouldn't be deciding this companies <laughs> and that's what's happening right now it's being decided on an individual basis by individual companies they're not good at doing this these were companies that got into the platform tech business in part because the profit margins are huge because you don't have to employ a lot of people so now they're coming in and they're trying to become journalists they're trying to become arbiters of the truth they're really not that good at it and in fact it's rather ironic that you even have companies like Facebook begging for regulation in the sense of please tell us what to do because we keep screwing this up. You know, they're taking full page ads in the New York Times saying it's time for a new, uh, a new set of regulations for the digital era. Governments really have to set the standards here. And I think that the standards on things like hate speech, misinformation, may differ from country to country. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Germany may have stronger feelings about certain kinds of hate speech than, say, the U.S. would. I, I think that those are decisions that can be made and perhaps should be made locally, but they should certainly be made by elected governments, not by companies. Over the last 15 years, we've seen crises on a number of fronts now. The global financial crisis, obviously climate change, and now public health crisis associated with the COVID pandemic. And this has led to government intervention on an unprecedented scale, with more money being injected into economies, growing public and private debt, and booming share markets. But even though these large technology companies and, and many other companies adopting new digital technologies have made a contribution to innovation, we see at the same time a productivity slowdown. Very puzzling together, of course, with wage stagnation and reduced economic dynamism associated with financialization of the corporate sector. I wonder if you could make sense of these developments for us. So you're using the word financialization, which was the topic of my first book, Makers and Takers. And that book really tracked exactly the trend that you're talking about. If you take the post-war era in a country like the U.S., there was a lot of shared growth, incomes were rising as GDP was rising. There was a story in which the fortunes of the country and companies and individuals were linked. Things were going in the same direction. That started to diverge really during the Reagan-Thatcher era, and in particular in the, in the late 1970s when certain shifts were made, particularly shifts around the idea of shareholder value. You know, the Chicago School, Milton Friedman's idea of shareholder value, and the idea that the share price is really the, the only metric that matters for a company. This pushed the economy in a certain direction. It gave us it gave us a lot of globalization, a lot of outsourcing, a lot of cheaper goods, but it didn't necessarily raise incomes or productivity for long stretches of time. And that's because the incentives were misaligned. So a company that's being judged on share price is going to do what Wall Street wants which is lower costs, martial capital, outsourced to the cheapest wage countries. If you're investing in something that's not going to pay off for five or seven or 10 years, which is typically what most serious technologies require, kind of productivity enhancing technologies and ideas, then you're going to be penalized. So you see that companies from the 80s onward, as they start to do things like invest in the future, their share price takes a hit. Whereas if they go in and do financial balance sheet manipulations, like, for example, buying back their own shares, which actually used to be illegal, it was illegal until 1982, has now become a very commonplace thing. In fact, share buybacks have been booming in recent years. What this does is artificially 
bolster the value of shares because you're taking some off of the open market, but it doesn't really change the story on the ground. It's not like inventing a new product or putting a new factory up and paying people, hiring people and paying them more. It's a completely financially engineered saccharine high. And unfortunately, our system in the Anglo-American world, I think, has encouraged this and it has led to an asset bubble, which is what we're in right now. We have share prices that are way up here. I mean, even in the midst of 10 years of you know great financial crisis, uh, now the pandemic, any number of disasters in between climate, trade strife, you still have share prices at record highs, even though you have growing inequality. So that divergence between the financial economy and the real economy, which is part and parcel of this neoliberal system, I think has, has really come to an end. And I suspect that when central bankers finally pull away the punch bowl of easy money and easy monetary policy, that we're going to see a major correction. And the only question in my mind is whether governments can act before that to start to create incentives for some real productivity growth. I mean, things like what you're seeing in the US and in Europe, actually, with the CHIPS Act, you know, trying to say, look, is it is it right that we should have outsourced 92% of all of our advanced semiconductor manufacturing to Taiwan, a rather contested country? Maybe we should incentivize through the public sector more production at home. Maybe we should take a, a slightly more, you might call it Germanic approach of saying we're not just a country of consumers, but we're also a country of producers. And we want to incentivize both things and we want to make sure that we're getting growth in the real economy, not just in the asset base. We now understand that maximizing time on site incentivizes material that appeals to our worst selves. (laughs) Populations now live in completely different information worlds. What are the most promising initiatives you're seeing to explicitly promote alternative business models incentivizing behaviors more likely to promote societal cohesion? Wow, what a great question. You know, I should, I should start by saying that the reason that I wrote my second book, Don't Be Evil, um, it, it sort of dovetails with this, and I have a bit of a personal story maybe to share. I have a 14-year-old boy as well as an 18-year-old girl. At the time that I was writing this book, my son was 12, and I became interested in, in the topic because I came home one day and I opened a credit card bill and I noticed all these strange small charges in increments of $1.99, $5. And I thought, my gosh, I've been hacked. Well, it turned out that they were all from the app store. <laughs> and so I thought, hmm, who has my Apple password? Oh, my 12-year-old son. And I interviewed him and I found out that he had become literally addicted to a video game that was purposefully marketing to children something called loot boxes, where you know, you're in a game that is, again, supposedly free, but in fact, you're buying things along the way to make you better, faster in the game. This is now, actually, there's legislation and train in the US to, to make that illegal and to bring digital rules around marketing to children in line with offline rules. And that's, that's a very basic thing that, that we can all do. I mean, just simply take the rules of fairness, human rights, values that exist in the offline world and bring them into the online world. Well, you can't market tobacco to children on TV. Well, why should you be able to sell them these these loot boxes online? But it was really fascinating to see that he was addicted to this product and being pulled through this game. Now, I think that there are business models where 
let's say a product online could be monetized not based on just eyeballs, but on what can get me someplace best or fastest. You know, um, I'm looking for just the right product and I want to get there quickly. That could be something that you might pay for. But these companies often have a hard time clawing their way into the marketplace because the existing platform paradigms are so dominant. And that's where I think antitrust is going to slowly but surely start to play a role to open things up. Know all about those games from (laughs) my own kids in the past. Um, (laughs) Interesting. According to the Influence Map report, oil and gas companies paid in 2020 at least 9.5 million US dollars to Facebook to mislead people about the role of oil and gas on climate change. Mm. So big tech is part of delaying climate action. What are your thoughts on this? Fascinating question. You know, you could substitute the word oil and gas for for many, um, many other campaigns, you know, nefarious goals. One of the things that's been pushed for recently in the U.S. is for big tech firms to kind of open up the algorithmic black box and show us who's paying for what. And in fact, there are now some rules around political advertising, for example, not so much around corporate advertising. But the companies have been very, very resistant to this because I think once you really open up and start to see you know, what money they're taking from where, what it's doing, not only to our children, but to our politics, to our society, you very quickly are on a slippery slope. There was actually a fantastic series uh, recently in the Wall Street Journal about just what Facebook is taking money for and how and why. And it's, it's really, you think you can't be shocked anymore, but you are when you, when you read these, these revelations. I think algorithmic auditing can play a role in some of this, but ultimately there's, there's just going to have to be clear rules. What can these companies do? What can't they do? And, and they'll have to be set by governments. And talking about rules, I guess our conversation wouldn't really be complete without addressing the issues of the gig economy, which is really becoming a very important part of the labour market, especially for young people getting their first jobs. And a lot of people locked into the gig economy as well with the casualization and precarious nature of new work as it's emerging in the technology ecosystem as a whole. Big tech, perhaps in the social media context, not so involved in this, but other aspects of big tech are and very much uh, on growth paths, resisting legislative control, resisting the idea that the people operating rideshare companies and so on are employees uh, as opposed to independent contractors. And we've seen a lot of interesting and quite conflicting court judgments on this around the world. I wonder what your perspective is on the gig economy on labour market inequality in that context and where we might go in terms of public policy. One of the basics of capitalism is that markets don't work when there's an asymmetry of information. You know, I mean, Adam Smith would say you need equal information about a transaction on both sides. You need shared access to to what's being bought and sold. Um, And you need a shared value system. And none of those things are in play in many aspects of the digital economy. But particularly when it comes to gig work, if you just think about an Uber driver, for example, um, I will pay a higher rate, a far higher rate than many people to get where I'm going because my time is valuable to me. I've got two kids to pick up. So, you know, when I plug in my, um, my, my ride share 
uh, request, they're going to charge me three times as much. They have access to that information. The driver does not. The driver cannot leverage that information. The driver is being completely controlled by the company. Um, people's the schedules are, you know, they're, they wreak havoc with, with their, their lifestyle because of this, and it's a completely unequal market. Unfortunately, lobbying dollars um, prevent, has, have prevented, actually, in California recently and also in some other states, um, the recognition that gig workers are actual workers. And if someone is driving for you 40 hours a week, um, if you're not paying them benefits, um, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not working for you. Um, I do think that slowly but surely you're going to see those, those rules overturned. You've seen some positive uh, rulings in, in, uh, in the UK and in other parts of Europe around this. Um, I think also you're going to start to see labor playing a more active role in regulating the digital economy. A lot of labor unions are advocating for um, data trusts and data pools in which uh, workers, consumers, governments would have equal access to information and also the value from that information. I mean, I could give you several examples of this. Um, in Toronto, the sidewalk project, uh, Google was at one point going to take over 40 acres of, um, of Toronto waterfront and essentially privatize all the data. And finally, politicians woke up and said, no, you know, this is owned by individuals, by the public uh, commons, and we're going to make it publicly available so that any company any consumer and, um, and governments themselves can access it. I think that that's where we're going ultimately. Um, it, we have to, because if you think about the amount of wealth that is now in data and intellectual property, 80% of corporate wealth is living in 10% of companies that have access to all this information. Um, that is only going to increase as we start to see all these technologies roll out in the healthcare sector, in the financial sector. And so the math really stops working in the labor market and in our economy and in society if we don't recoup some of that value. Uh, just one very quick one, whether the FT and the quality press can play a role and what role it might be in countering false news uh, as we see projected in much of social media? Well, I, I hope that we can. Um, you know, I mean, we, we have very rigorous fact-checking standards. We are all professional journalists, but we operate on a subscription model. And so people are paying us to be right. They're paying us for the truth. And we're an expensive product. You know, in, in America, you pay $400, $500 for a, a print subscription and just as much for a digital subscription. That's great for the people that can afford the FT, and, and the FT does a lot of philanthropy, giving it away to universities and schools and so on. But it does really go to your earlier point of the wealth divide and the information wealth divide. A wealthy person can pay for the truth. Many people that aren't so lucky are going to Facebook for their news, and we, we have to fix that. That's all for today. Thanks to Roy Green and Rana Faruha. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out and don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe and I'll see you next week.